you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. Augustine said that whenever you preach a sermon, you have three jobs to engage, to inspire, and to sway. Um, Andy Stanley said that you should preach me, we, God, you, and we. And my preaching professor said that uh, the single most important thing you can do with uh, a congregation uh, is to build ethos. And so often, uh, I try to make myself, uh, make you know me in some way through the sermon. I think of stories from my life, and and usually they uh, well up early in the sermon crafting experience. Normally, something about the intro is early in my notes. Uh, I know going in Sunday morning, usually, uh, how things are going to start. And when I printed my very short outline, there's one tucked in here every week, just in case you wondered, um, Normally, I have a developed intro, and this week the outline simply says intro. Uh, I have felt uh, real clarity in what this text is saying uh, for us to do, but I've struggled uh, about how to get into this text. It's been a text that I have wanted to find the lighthearted, jokey way of getting in, um, but instead, I just had to be honest that this is a, a weighty text for me because it draws upon the depths of what we actually believe about the nature and character of God. We're in this uh, season of epiphany, which starts with the story of uh, the Magi uh, coming and encountering Jesus. This is the first glimmer of God's revelation to the Gentiles. And in this season, we're supposed to look about how uh, we, as the the bearers of Christ's presence in the world, uh, shine that light. And for some reason, uh, the pastoral team at our church decided we were going to preach the Old Testament texts uh, in this season. And I love the Old Testament. It was the thing I was going to do a PhD in. It's, it's uh, fascinating to me. But I have struggled to make a couple leaps. And so I think we just have to talk about theology proper before we talk about the book of Isaiah. And then we have to talk about Isaiah before we talk about Jesus. Is that okay? Bill keeps telling me to bring a whiteboard up here. I probably should have brought a whiteboard today because there are two foundational things I think we have to talk about as we approach uh, our text today. Uh, First is uh, how we understand God's providence. Uh, What what do we think God causes versus what does God allow versus what does God uh, watch happen? Um, This has a huge impact on how we understand every text and how we live our lives. Uh, there's one stream of Christianity that is uh, uh, marked, our, our Baptist friends, our Presbyterian friends, a lot of our Lutheran friends would hold uh, that God is very much in control of every detail of our world, that our actions are largely uh, a response to this laid out plan that God has had that we will do, and we are actors in God's story. You hear this theology come out with things like God had a plan. God needed, um, or God told me. Um, 
this, this idea that uh, we are simply responding to the movement God is doing uh, and making us go. And you can absolutely find this in Scripture if you look for, for the text hard enough. If you look, you can, you can make a compelling case that God uh, really is the one holding together the activities of the world and we are simply doing them. That is not Wesleyan theology. Wesleyan theology is a step down the road. God is still the very first actor in every bit of our lives. God's grace is going before us in everything we say and do. God is uh, the only reason we can at all be good. We are, we are uh, um, totally depraved outside of God's grace, but we believe that God's grace is in our lives and then we get to respond. Uh, this goes all the way from us choosing to respond to God's grace and accepting his uh, freedom and deliverance and being called sons and daughters of the God Most High, all the way to uh, how we live out uh, God's instructions to go and make disciples. Calling, uh, when God has a plan that you have to enact that God is doing, is definitely trying to live within exactly what God has planned for you. Does that make sense? Calling, uh, when you're in Wesleyan theology, is different. It is responding to the grace in your life in ways that honor God's calling to go and make disciples and to be disciples. If you're over here, God has a plan, and you're just living it out, and you've got to make sense of it. If you're over here, God has a grace that you have to respond to and then you have to be in, in partnership and conversation with God. You have to be looking for his grace and discerning uh, the ways to live your life. Does this make sense? You can think maybe uh, how these two understandings of theology would play out in a hospital room. When I come and visit you in the hospital and there's a new diagnosis, when that family member is dying or has died, uh, the words we say reflect the theology we have it's a lot neater to talk about it right now than in your hospital room. If you sound like this over here in your hospital room, I am not going to be like, no, God didn't do that. Mm -mm. No, I'm not going to try to correct your theology there. Um, but you, you hear how uh, God has a plan would play out in uh, which person lives and dies, which person uh, suffers and which one experiences blessings. You hear this, right? Now, we have a, a different question or statement we have to uh, say when we're at the hospital. Why would God allow this? How is this okay? Why didn't God answer my prayer? Might be our cry, and I don't want to go and be like, well, God, you know, sometimes God's got to give us our unanswered prayers. Garth Brooks had a good song, but um, there are times where we have cried out with deep groaning, and until new creation, we don't know how God has answered that prayer or not. Our theology impacts everything. So that's our, our first thing that we got to hear going into uh, today's text, okay? This was the thing I had to get off my mind. And then we had to get a second thing off our mind. Uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament are different. Do all, would you all concede that statement? Greg nodded his head yes. They are, they are distinctly different for lots of reasons. This is where the whiteboard would come in really handy. Marilyn and I are talking about getting tattoos of uh, an explanation of the Trinitarian God. Um, I just pointed to my bicep. I don't know where Marilyn was, uh, on her shoulder, okay. Um, 
the worldview of the folks in the Old Testament is dramatically different than the worldview of the people in the New Testament. The people in the Old Testament are largely a Hebraic people, a, uh, um, an Aramaic people who hold a, a particular worldview and who understand their God as Yahweh. Yahweh is the, uh, the most personal understanding of who God is in the Old Testament. Yahweh reveals God's self in different ways. Uh, he can reveal himself uh, on a mountain or through a messenger, through uh, a, a wind that blows through or through a storm cloud. But Yahweh is the Old Testament understanding of God. Yes? The New Testament understanding of God is in a world where Israel is now part of the Greco-Roman Empire, well, really the Roman Empire, but is influenced by Greco-Roman uh, thought and philosophy and understanding. Where Yahweh is over here and is this kind of ethereal God being, uh, the New Testament people live in a world of Plato and Socrates and the pantheon of gods, and they have to make sense of this God who reveals God's self in different ways with the promises that God has made as Yahweh. And so the, the New Testament uh, um, folks begin to talk about God as um, creator, redeemer, sustainer, father, son, Holy Spirit, as, uh, as uh, God the Father who created, as Jesus the Son who uh, was the firstborn of creation, and, all the, and the Holy Spirit who uh, brings forth creation uh, from God's word. It, it's a different understanding of who God is, and yet it's the same God. Does that make sense? One more difference that we need to talk about, and then I'll stop. Old Testament, God mediates his presence to the world in very particular ways. If God is going to speak to Bill, he is going to speak to Bill probably through somebody else unless Bill is a Moses or a prophet. Uh, God is going to speak to someone who then speaks to the everyone. You see this when, God, when Moses goes up on a mountain and God speaks, and then Moses comes and shares it with Israel. You see this with all the prophets. God says, here's what I want you to tell Israel, and then the story says they went and told Israel. And then if you want to talk to God in the Old Testament, the way you do it is you go to the priest. You bring your grain or your dove or your cow or, we talked about in Sunday school, your lamb, um, and you come and you say, here's how I want to talk to God, and you give your sacrifice probably for your sins and the sins of your family, and the priest mediates your presence to God. Okay? Then you flip the page to the New Testament, and it changes dramatically. The way God mediates God's self to the world is by showing up in flesh. God shows up in the person of Jesus Christ and goes and talks to Sandy and to Catherine, and to Amelia, and goes and listens and hears and dialogues and, and responds, and God is present as person and fully God right in this midst. And then when Jesus dies, God doesn't go back to, okay, it's time for us to start slaughtering those, those lambs again. He sends his spirit as the one who mediates God's presence between humanity and him. No longer do we have to go to the priest. Instead, we can go directly to the, the great high priest, as the book of Hebrews talks about, to Jesus himself through the Spirit who brings our prayers to God. So we have to lay our theological foundations. We have to name a worldview difference and a difference in the way that God mediates himself between uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Have we hung on to all those? Okay, now we can talk about today's text. Uh, Isaiah 49. Uh, we're 
pretty far into uh, one of the largest books of the Bible, 66 chapters that tell Israel's story from before the very first nation attacked it to its return from exile. This, this book tells like a 500-year story uh, through the lens of Isaiah the prophet. A story that starts with this throne room vision we're familiar with of, uh, oh, woe is I am, a man with unclean lips, of seraphim and cherubim flying about, of coals touching lips and all this. And then we have Isaiah spending chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter, keeping going, right? Keeping going, chapter after chapter, saying, just be faithful. Stop worshiping other gods. Listen. Stop. And while you're at it, treat each other better. Stop. Be faithful and treat each other better. For chapter after chapter after chapter, and people are like, nope, not going to do it. And so they keep ignoring the words of the prophet, and the prophet gets tighter and tighter, and Yahweh keeps going, well, here's what's going to happen. And story after story, what God said happened, happens. Isaiah says, if you don't change, the Assyrians are going to come and take this out. And lo and behold, the Assyrians come and take out the northern kingdom. And the, the greater top half of Israel never recovers. Isaiah says, okay, Judah, you and Benjamin down here in the south. If y'all didn't pay attention before, look what just happened up here. Don't make treaties with foreign nations. Don't do this mess. Be faithful and treat each other better. Or, you're going to be sent into exile. I want to give Israel a little credit, because I'm probably pretty dense too, so I probably might have ignored the prophet if I was in this situation. I know some of you are nodding, because uh, it's easy to put ourselves in Jesus' picture. We often should be the ones who ignore the message of God. Uh, but they do. They ignore the prophet's word, and lo and behold, they're taken into captivity in Babylon. We, we know from the other gospel accounts that God says this is going to be a generation. This whole southern kingdom is going to go and basically lose every promise of the Abrahamic covenant. You're no longer a nation. You're no longer a people. You're no longer a blessing to the world. But eventually, your children will come back. And we're at that kind of point in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 49, we've gotten through the, well, God is going to eventually restore things in a moment, and now we have this depth of Isaiah reckoning, reckoning with exactly where he is in his ministry. He is worn out. He is dumbfounded at Israel. In some ways, he seems frustrated with God. He doesn't understand uh, this grace moment after exile. And so we turn to Isaiah 49. Listen, people. Pay attention. The Lord called me before my birth, called my name when I was in my mother's womb. He made my mouth like a sharp sword and hid me in the shadow of God's own hand. He made me a sharpened arrow and concealed me in God's quiver, saying to me, you are my servant. Israel in whom I show my glory. Isaiah never loses sight of this calling idea. And he'll go farther than even the throne room vision. He'll say, God, God was calling me before I was born. This particular call God has for me is particular to me and was known before I was ever born. But I said, I have wearied myself in vain 
I've used up my strength for nothing. Nevertheless, the Lord will grant me justice. My reward is with God. He is tired. And his only hope is that this God who has been faithful will be faithful to him. And now the Lord has decided that the one who formed me from his womb as a servant to restore Jacob to God so that Israel might return to him. Moreover, I am honored in the Lord's eyes. My God has become my strength. God is going to restore Jacob. I am worn out. I have no energy. But God... God can and will. And he said, it is not enough since you are my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the survivors to Israel. Hence, I will also appoint you as a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah has just said he's weary, right? He's just said he is exhausted and his only hope is the strength of God. And he says, and guess what? Not only is God going to restore Jacob, to restore Israel, he's going to use me, that this light might go to the nations, to the worlds. In the Old Testament, the light is for Israel. Uh, at the moment we move from the Tower of Babel to the people of, uh, of Israel, from the Tower of Babel to Abraham's family, the narrative shifts where God's grace is primarily for Israel. It is uh, a kindness to the nations that God does not keep forcing them to try to be in relationship and instead says, I'm going to let you be, and I'm going to bless through Israel. And so for most of the Old Testament, Israel is God's people, and God responds to Israel, and the nations are just kind of left out there, uh, uh, a sign of uh, what it looks like to forsake God and leave him behind. But we get these glimmer moments way earlier in the story. These things that point us to something bigger. Rahab, who declares that God's, uh, the God of Israel is the God who protects the spies. We, we get to Ruth the Moabite, who says, surely uh, your God will be my God. We get to uh, King Xerxes listening to Esther. We get to the story of Jonah, where Gentile sailors become uh, part of God's enacted plans for Israel, uh, when Israel is to be the plans for the world. This moment begins to push to something new. No longer is it going to be a Gentile here and a Gentile there. God has given me strength to be a light to the nations. The Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and its Holy One says to one despised, rejected by the nations, to the slave of rulers, kings will see and stand up. Commanders will bow down on account of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Isaiah, it is not on your own work and your own energy. It is on me who has called you. I have called you. I will sustain you, and I will cause kings of the world to pay attention. There's the text. Right? So now we just need to be like Isaiah and listen for our call, right? We need to uh, have God give us a throne room moment where the fire touches our lips and we go do exactly what he has planned for us, right? 
It'd be a whole lot easier if that's how God works. But I'd like to suggest that uh, the whole concept of call changes dramatically when God's revelation changes. God calls people in particular ways in the Old Testament because this is how God reveals God's self to people. By and large, God shows up through spokespeople, through prophets and priests. In the New Testament, God shows up as people, the one who is a prophet and priest, and then pours out his spirit for us to go and do what is our calling. And outside of maybe Paul, there doesn't seem to be particular callings in the New Testament for you're going to go do an exactly this thing. Instead, the calling is to go and to make disciples. The calling is to go and be faithful. There's a lot in the New Testament, and there's the details, and, and we need to talk about the details. We need to talk about what scriptural holiness looks like. We need to talk about what particular ways we live out God's calling. But at every turn, God says something to the effect of believe and respond. This is your calling. God doesn't say, hey, Sandy, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, you're not a Christian. He doesn't say, Jack, if you don't do this job, you are failing me. Harper, if you don't go to this college, you are, you are cut off. He says, follow me and love people. And, and God's, God's been following along in the story for a while at this point too, right? God goes, and I know you can't do it on your own, so I'm going to give you the Spirit of God, the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, the Spirit that helped him ascend on high, to be your very presence of God with you at every moment. You don't need to go to the temple to discern. You don't need to go offer a sacrifice. Listen to the Spirit, love God, and be faithful. I could leave pastoral ministry tomorrow and go work in a bank and God would not be angry at me. You could change your job tomorrow and God is not going to love you any less. Does that mean that we don't have gifts and graces that lead us certain places? Do I, would my life be as fulfilling if I went back to business? I'm not so sure it would, but would God be disappointed because I was acting outside of his plan? If I stopped making disciples, if I stopped being faithful to God, if I stopped growing in holiness, God would absolutely be disappointed. But if I went and was the most uh, holy-filled banker in one of those big buildings downtown, God would love me no less and be no less pleased with me. This idea of miraculous callings like Isaiah has causes us problems because it sets up a, an idolatry of the priesthood. If you are uh, wanting to grow in your faith, there is a track. Go to seminary and get ordained. That's the pinnacle of holiness. But that is not how God works. He says, go and make disciples. Follow me. Love others. Friends, God loves you no matter what your job is or what your college is. God loves you no matter how much money you make or how little money you make. And God wants you to do one thing. Follow him. We're calling this series The Faithfulness of the Lord because it is in every text in some way or another that God is the one who sustains and God is the one whose grace goes before and it is God who loves you and calls you to himself. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? God, um, we are thankful for those that you have called in particular ways throughout your story uh, to, to be your revelation to the world and to announce the good news of what you were doing 
And Lord, we give thanks that, uh, that we no longer have to go and search out a temple and a good sacrifice. That we no longer have to hope that somebody will uh, speak your words to us and that you will, or they will take our words to you. Instead, uh, we, we praise you for the gift of your Son and of your Spirit. That Jesus took care of the sacrifices and the Spirit enables us to love you. Lord, set us free from uh, a false burden of what our calling is and then captivate us with the calling to love and follow you, to make disciples, to grow in love of you and love our neighbor. Pour out your grace in abundance that it is, uh, it is felt and that it is dramatically transformative, that uh, when the world looks at us, they see you. We love you. And we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.